For the next five weeks, sort of parallel to our 100th anniversary remembrance, as we have, as we have times of remembering what God has done, right, hearing stories from the past, right, having little glimpses of our German heritage and, and praying the Lord's Prayer in German, we'll be going through a sermon series that I've entitled Crossroads. Crossroads, because we are a church that is at a crossroads. We stand between our first century and our second century. And even as we look back and remember the past, we remember God's faithfulness, it's important for us as a church to turn and look forward to the future. We are a church that has to take that conversation seriously. If I can speak honestly and openly for a second. There are churches that can afford to coast. They're filled with members, and they have decades ahead of them to kind of take their foot off the gas and to drift. We can't afford to do that anymore. We are a church that needs to be intentional as we go forward about what it is that we do about going and making disciples. Because that's the mission that God has called us to. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be talking through sort of a a main primary mission that is making disciples. That's what the sermon this morning is going to be talking about. And then in the four weeks after that, as we get to our 100th anniversary celebration, the day itself, we'll be talking about four different ways in which we can do that. But this morning, I want to be able to preach from Matthew 28 on what it actually means to be a church that makes disciples. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God Almighty, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I am so often reminded that you used Balaam's donkey to get your message across. So I pray that I wouldn't be under the delusion. I pray that no one in here would be under the delusion that I'm anything special. Lord, I'm a vessel that you will use to proclaim your word, and I pray that you would use me this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would soften hearts, would draw hearts to you, would knit us together as a community. Let your word go forth and do its work, we pray, O God. And I pray that I wouldn't get in the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The word disciple is a word that we're pretty familiar with, 
right, in our, in our, you know, just cultural vocabulary of the day. And I think we have a pretty good idea of what it means to be a disciple of someone or something, but I think it's worth revisiting. So if we're going to take the literal meaning of the word disciple, if we're going to go back to what the word actually means, it means a student. The word disciple comes from the Greek word for to learn, Someone who learns is a disciple. A disciple is a student. Right? In, ancient, in ancient times, uh, religious leaders, philosophical leaders had students. People who followed them around, sat at their feet, and learned from them. Right? We know about the 12 disciples. We know about Peter and James and John. We know about Judas, the bad one. We might know some names of the other disciples, right? Like, like Matthew and maybe Simon the Zealot. And then there's the few that we always forget, like Thaddeus and Bartholomew and Nathaniel. And I don't even know if I'm making up any names right there. But there's, just, there's 12 of them, and we remember like five of them. But Jesus had 12 disciples. In the New Testament, Jesus wasn't the only person who had disciples. John the Baptist, right? The prophet who went before Jesus you know, went before him, and he had disciples. And Scripture records different conversations that John the Baptist's disciples had with Jesus' disciples. The Pharisees had disciples, right? The, the religious leaders that Jesus debated with so often, they had students that they were teaching their doctrine, teaching their ways to. Zooming out even a little bit more, men whose names we would recognize, like Aristotle, Socrates, they had people who, were, who would sit at their feet and learn from them. Teachers in the ancient world had disciples. But there's a distinction here that I think that we need to make, and I think we kind of automatically make it, but it's worth saying. Right, just because I'm a student doesn't mean I follow everything that my teacher says. So I went to... Um, a seminary that I went to, it was a good school, uh, but it was not necessarily a Presbyterian or Reformed school. It was kind of historically Baptist. Uh, and they had a lot of different teachers from a lot of different denominational backgrounds. I had teachers who went to Baptist churches. I had teachers who went to Episcopal churches. I had teachers who went to Evangelical Covenant churches and Christian Reformed churches and all of these other different traditions. So that means I had teachers who I sat in class with and I, I learned from, but I didn't necessarily follow them on all of the particular religious points that they believed in or that they taught. Sometimes a teacher taught something and I said, I see where you came to that conclusion, but I, I disagree with you. And that doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're still way smarter than I am. But even though they're my teacher and I am their student, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm their disciple. Do you see the difference there? A disciple is not just a student, but it's an adherent to a way of life. It's one thing to sit underneath a teacher and learn something. It's another to actually follow in their footsteps as they go around and they teach their way of life, as they teach their lifestyle. Jesus, throughout his ministry, as we read the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, we hear stories of Jesus calling people to be his disciples. Right? He calls the 12 disciples. He says, come and follow me. Leave your nets. They're going to be okay where they are. Right? Your parents will take care of them. Your servants will take care of them. Leave your nets. Come and follow me. He talks to other people as he's going through his ministry, not just 
He invites them not just to learn from him, but to come and follow him, to learn and join his way of life, not just to learn some facts. He has these conversations with people. This, uh, this reading is from Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, if anyone's going to follow me and does not hate, these are strong words, but bear with me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let me read that again, just so we, just so we get it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Some of you may be thinking, well, I already hate my wife, so I guess I'm halfway there. But that's not what this is talking about, is it? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross was not simply a heavy burden to be borne. The cross in that day was a method of execution. What Jesus is saying here is not that you have to, you know, get in fights with your family if you're going to follow Jesus, but that a choice to follow Jesus is such a radical change in your life that it means prioritizing Christ and his way of life above your family It may not mean leaving your family, but it might mean leaving your family. There are some cultures in the world today that are so opposed to Christianity that if you become a Christian, if you convert into Christianity, that means expulsion from your family. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, if anyone's going to come after me, you have to be willing to leave your family. You have to be willing to pick up a method of execution and come and follow me. It's costly to follow Jesus. It's costly to be his disciple. Verse number 28, continuing. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Right? This is something that we see nowadays, right? If you, you know, you're driving down the street and you see a foundation that's laid and maybe a frame up, but the, you know, the work's just sitting there for a while, right? Someone started building a house, but they didn't budget it right. And so they can't afford to pay the contractors to come and, and finish building the thing and furnish it and put plumbing in and all of that stuff. If you're going to embark on a building project, you have to count the cost. You have to budget it out. You have to know what the cost is up front before you dive in. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. But if there's, if there's a king, if there's a leader of a country and he's, you know, there's, there's a nation who they're not super friendly with on the border and it looks like war, they're going to sit down with their generals and they're going to say, okay, what's our strength? What's their strength? At least what's our best guess of their strength? And they're going to try to measure it out, right? If, they, if they've got it, right, they're going to act all big and tough and hopefully try to get the other country to back down. But if they, if they, if they don't have it, 
If they know that if they go into a war, they're going to get their butts kicked by the other country, they're going to be like, oh, there's no, there's no need for war. We're going to send our Secretary of State over there to talk to you. We have to count the cost. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus is not merely to be baptized. It's not merely to have Christian in the, you know, your Facebook profile and your denomination or your religion. To be a disciple of Jesus means someone who turns from their former way of life, turns from their sin, turns from all of their other idols, the things that they love, the things that they hold precious to them, and not necessarily to reject those things, but to love Christ more. Turning away from those things and to Christ. If anyone, if you, does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. There is a cost to it. Another word for this is repentance and faith. Right? Repentance is turning away from your sin, naming it, saying, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm not going to pursue my selfishness or my pride or my lust or any of these other things that have a grip on me. And it's instead turning to Christ and treasuring him and his way of life above all. It's leaving your nets and coming to sit at the feet of Jesus in order to learn about his way of life. It's forsaking all that you have and going to follow Christ. Right, spending time with a teacher in ancient times wasn't to earn a degree. The 12 disciples were not saying, hey, we're going to take a break from fishing because it's important that we further our education and right, get a bachelor's degree in Jesus studies and then we're going to go back and be able to have more career. No, that's not, that's not what it is. They were going to sit at his feet to learn Christ's way of life. And if we're going to summarize Jesus' way of life, we can summarize it by saying loving God and loving your neighbor. Right? That's what Jesus said were the, the greatest two commandments in the law. Right? Someone, you know, one of the teachers of the law came to him and they said, Master, trying to trick him. Master, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with everything that you have, to love God, to be loyal to God. The second one is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Then Jesus said on these two commandments, Hang all the law and the prophets. Put another way, if we're trying to keep all of God's commands, if we just focus on those two, focus on loving God, focus on loving our neighbor, we're going to wind up keeping everything. That is the lifestyle that Jesus calls people to. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from all of the good things that you love more than God that are idols that need to be set aside. Turn away from those things. Come and follow Jesus. Come and follow him by faith. Because if you turn from your sins, Christ will give you the strength that you need in order to follow him. Christ's disciples were not simply those who literally followed him around a small patch of land in the Middle East. But it was those who, after he had ascended into heaven, it was those people who adopted his way of life. 
Acts 6, verse 7 says this. After he went to heaven... Sorry, that's my notes. That's not what the word says. Hang on. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The word of God increases. Right? The word goes out. It's being proclaimed. It's being preached. And the number of disciples multiplies greatly in Jerusalem. Now, were these disciples people who were going to go follow Jesus and sit at his feet? No, because he was in heaven. But also, yes. Because there are people that had turned from their way of life, who had repented of their sins, who turned in faith to follow the teachings of Jesus. Turned to love God with everything that they had, to love God above all. Turned to not just love themselves, but to love their neighbors as themselves. People who came into the fold of Christianity and became disciples. People who, by God's grace, because we know that we can never turn on our own. By God's grace and in his power, turn and begin to follow Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who by faith and by God's power devotes their life to loving God and loving their neighbors. A disciple of Jesus is someone who by faith and by God's power devotes their life to loving God and loving their neighbors. If you would, imagine with me that I am standing on a scale. Right? I always, for some reason, whenever I have like a good side of the room and a bad side of the room, the bad side is always this side. And I apologize to all of you sitting on this side. It's because of Stan that I, I just put him on the bad side. I'm just kidding, Stan. I'll explain later. All right, so over here, against this wall, we have the perfect disciple of Jesus. The person who's over here loves God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. They do it as they should. There's never moments that they don't love God. Right? Like they, they love their neighbor as themselves. They, they're the greatest person that you know. They also don't exist in this life. The person over here who is perfect, who's made it, who has attained, is the person who on that final day, after God has raised them from the dead, stands fully complete in him. None of us are here yet. But we're all walking this way. On this side, you know, kind of, we have the middle. We're not going to get there yet. But on this side, we have people who are in various states in their Christian life. Right? The person who is maybe right here is someone who's been walking with God for decades and decades. Right? They're a mature Christian. They don't love God like they should, but they, really, they love him really well. They don't love their neighbor like they should, but they, they do a really good job of showing and displaying God's love. Some of you are here. Some of you have been maturing in your Christian faith. You've been being a disciple for years and years and years. And, you know, when the time finally comes for, for you to become, you know, that perfect Christian on, the, on that final day in the next life, you don't, you're not going to have far to go. People over here, you know, a little bit, little bit less mature, but it's also okay. Right? There are some people who are, you know, they're baby Christians. They're right here. And that, that's, that's great as well. As long as we're in, on a trajectory this way, you know, as long as we're being discipled, growing in grace, you know, sometimes we're going to backtrack a little bit, but as long as our general trajectory is this way, taking, you know, little baby steps because it takes decades and years to make it to that point, that, this is the Christian life. Trajectory from Christian immaturity over to here. Other wall. The person who's over here 
is the worst person you know. This person, their heart is totally hard to God. Right? They, they completely reject everything that he has. Right? This, the person standing right here it also probably doesn't exist. This would be like Satan incarnate. Not only do they not love God, but they hate God. Not only do they not love their neighbor, but they hate their neighbor. And they, they look for ways and opportunities to rebel against God and, to, and to, you know, to hate their neighbor in active ways. They're a bad person. The people that we know who are not followers of Jesus are somewhere along this trajectory. Some people are right here. And I, I want to stress that, you know, just because you're close to this way doesn't mean that you're in some way a violent person, you know, like you're in prison or something like that. No, you can be, you know, an upstanding citizen, but your heart's hardened to the things of God. You can go to church every week and be right here. If you think that Christianity is just about somehow saying that you're a Christian, somehow just attending church without actually allowing your heart to be changed, without actually turning from the, the idols and the wickedness that God calls us to turn away from, you can be right here. Maybe there are some people who, who are your neighbors, who are your coworkers, who are here, but maybe there are some who are over here who are not, not saved, not, not disciples of Jesus yet, but they're, they're curious. Their hearts have, you know, God's been working on their hearts to plant questions in their mind. Maybe they haven't repented of their sins yet, but they're growing increasingly disillusioned by the things that they thought would satisfy them, but ultimately just kind of turn to ash in their mouth. And they're ready, maybe not quite yet, but they're ready by God's grace to step into this place. And the person in the middle is the person who, for the first time, repents of their sin, for the first time, trusts Christ for their salvation, who, for the first time, just like the disciples, looked up at Jesus and they dropped their nets for the first time and took the first step to follow him. That's where this person is here. This is not necessarily an evangelistic sermon this morning, but if you're here, there's nothing stopping you from stepping to right here today. There's nothing stopping you from trusting Christ for your salvation today. Because in him alone is salvation. It's only in Christ. But this is the scale that we have, right? Way over there to way over here. Here's the thing. Not only does Jesus call us to follow him, and he does. He says, come follow me. Let go of your nets, let go of your sin, let go of your previous way of life. Be willing to set aside even your family because it's that important to follow Jesus. Not only does he call us to be disciples, what does he command us to do in the Great Commission? Make disciples. Right, so not only are we called to progress along this line, you know, from here to here, but we are called to bring people all the way over here. Right, so we're not just stepping, but we're called to encourage people to come with us. And there's a couple different aspects of this. Right, for the people over here, for our family, for our loved ones, for our neighbors, for our coworkers who don't love Jesus, whose hearts are in, maybe they're, a little bit hard, maybe they're really hard, but we're called to encourage them, to tell them about the wonderful grace of Christ, to say there's great salvation that can be found if you drop your nets, if you turn from your sin and you follow Jesus. We're called to evangelize those around us, to tell people about the gospel of Christ so that they come and be disciples. We are called to make disciples. 
But not only that, we're called to help the people who are over here too. Right? If you're, if you're one of the people who've been walking with God for years, there's some people back here who need your help to get over here. That's part of making disciples too. Because we're all imperfect disciples until we get to that final day. Maybe there's someone back here who you can help to drag along and say, hey, no, I've, I've walked this road before you. I can, I can help you out with prayer. I can help you out in helping you to read the Bible consistently. I can help you out. We, let's, let's do this. Maybe there's someone who's kind of right next to you and you, you can help put a hand on their back if they're tempted to turn around and start walking backwards a little bit. But we are all, every single human being, the people in this room, the people out there, the people all over the world, we're all on this scale somewhere. And when we are called to make disciples, we are called to go and bring people to that point. That is our duty as Christians. That is not a gift that only some people have. That is a command that God has given to the entire church. Right before he left and went to heaven, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Teaching them, baptizing them, but bringing people, as you yourself, go to Christian maturity, walking with people along that path. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about how the mission of our church, the things that we do, factor in to making disciples who love God and who love their neighbor. That's summarized, if you're curious, at the bottom of the inside of the, the right inside page of your bulletin. We're going to be spending the next four weeks talking about those things. But really quick, next week we'll talk about worship, right? what we do on Sunday mornings. Right? God calls to people primarily through the preaching of his word and the administration of his sacraments. Right? That's how God reaches out to people in order to make hearts alive. And we love God in response primarily through participation in Sunday morning worship. Right? As, we, as we pray to God on Sunday mornings, as we sing to God on Sunday mornings in response, that's how we love God. But we also participate in humble growth. We have to spend time growing together unto Christian maturity in which we love God as we should and we love our neighbors as we should. Right? None of us do that right now. But we are to humbly grow together. As Ephesians 4 talks about the body, right? the body of believers, which is the church growing up from being a little kid to the full-grown stature of a man that is Jesus Christ. We'll talk about hospitality, what it means to invite people in, neighbors, Christians, unsaved, saved, inviting people into our homes and our lives, which is a great way to facilitate both mutual growth, right, that's a great place for the humble growth to happen, and also just for spreading the gospel to neighbors that don't know Jesus, just bringing people into our homes and into our lives. And then on that final Sunday, we'll talk about generous service, how we as the people of God, we seek to meet the physical needs of our community so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. But all four of those things center around what we have today, the command to make disciples. I don't want to dive too much into you know, the translation choices that are made in English translations in this passage that we read, but I, I think it's important to do that a little bit. The translation that we read earlier, right, the ESV, the NIV, most modern translations will say, go and make disciples. 
right? But the way the Greek is set up, make disciples is the primary command there. And go is sort of a, a verb, a command that looks forward or looks to making disciples. If you're confused, that's probably, I'm bad at explaining things sometimes. Let's say I was going to tell you, go run and catch the train. Right? We don't take trains anymore, but if I'm like, you know, run and, run and catch the train. What's the important thing in that phrase, in that command? Catch the train. Do I actually care if you run in order to do so? Not really. Like, that's not, that's not a, if you walk and catch the train, great. If you run in the other direction and don't catch the train, am I going to be happy? No, because that's not what I was really talking about. I, I want you to catch the train. Running's just what you do in order to catch the train. That's sort of the same idea with go and make disciples. Making disciples is what God has called us to do. But in order to do that, we have to go. Disciples aren't made by accident. Disciples aren't made by accident. None of us wake up in the morning, right, 30 years after our conversion, never attempt to make a disciple in our life. None of us just wake up and say, oh man, I made a lot of disciples last week. That never happens. We have to go in order to make disciples. That's part of the command, right? You're going to make disciples, and in order to do so, we have to go. We have to do something. If we continue to be a church of people who come in and, yes, attend church on Sunday mornings, but then go home and we kind of do our own thing, but never really take this seriously, we will die. Because we're neglecting the central command that God has given to us. The command to go in order to make disciples. We're familiar, I think, with uh, sort of the, the three steps in, in firing a gun, right? Ready, aim, fire. That sounds familiar to us. You get, you know, you get everything ready, then you aim, then you fire. With making disciples, it might be a little better if we kind of considered ready, fire, aim. If you switch the last two, ready, fire, aim. Because like with a gun, you've got to be really careful. You've got to make sure that everything's lined up perfect because you, know, you treat every gun like it's the loaded gun. And if you're not careful, you might wind up shooting somebody and that's, that's you know, bad, obviously. But with making disciples, sometimes we can spend so much time Considering the right way to do it. And da, da, da. And we can, okay, do we, well, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? We think, we think, we think, we think, we think. When sometimes we just need to go. Maybe you'll do it bad. I, doing it bad is better than not doing it. Or just go and make disciples ready, fire, aim. We'll get better at this thing as we go along. But it's important, it's essential that we go. One of, the, one of the responses that I hear from people is that, you know, all of, all of my neighbors are Christians. There's no more disciples left to make. And sometimes in a, in a culture like the, the modern United States of America, it can feel like that, right? Everybody's a Christian. And maybe you do live in a, you know, in a place where your next door neighbors are Christian and the person across the street and all the people you know go to church. But there's a huge chunk of the population surrounding us that doesn't know Christ. 
15% of the people in our surrounding area. 15%. So one-sixth of the people surrounding us don't claim to be Christian. They either claim to you know, have no interest in religion at all, or maybe they, maybe they take uh, you know, another, another religion, Judaism, Hinduism, something like that. 15% of people will tell you that they are not a Christian. One out of every six people will tell you that they are not a Christian. But even of those who tell you that they are Christians, right, if you look at you know, the entire population, you can kind of divide it into thirds. A third of people take their faith really, really seriously. Right? They're, they're devout to it. They, you know, go to, they go to church every Sunday. They're involved. Their kids go to youth group, all of that stuff. About a third of people. About a third of people kind of in the middle, they're somewhat involved. You know, and, and what that means is kind of up for debate, but maybe they go occasionally, maybe they go on Christmas and Easter, maybe there's something, there's something there, but they're not super involved. But a full third of people in the area surrounding us, a full third don't have any involvement, right? They're, they're Catholic because their parents were Catholic and they were baptized Catholic, but there's no actual life in them. Or maybe, you know, they, their wife is Lutheran, so they say, hey, I'm, I'm Lutheran, but there's not actual love for God there. So depending on which one of those measurements you're going to take, you know, of the one out of every six people who just say, hey, oh, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm, you know, this other thing. Or if you take the one out of every three people who say, yeah, I'm not really involved with, with my faith at all, there are disciples to be made in the people around us. But they're not made by accident. We have to go. So I want to encourage each and every one of you. Find a way to make disciples. Get to know your neighbors, even the ones that you don't like. Go love them like you love yourself, even though they're, you know, someone that makes you uncomfortable to talk to or something. Go, go get to know them, because they need Jesus just as much as you do. If you do live in a scenario where all of the people around you are, you know, I go to, you know, X and Y good church, and I go to, you know, this other church that's also great. If that's your situation, go get involved in the community. Go find people because they're there to be found. Go and make disciples. That's the command that God gives to us. Make disciples. We have to go in order to do it. In the bulletin, in the discussion questions, I, I included a series of questions that in an ideal world, I think that we can all answer. And if you can't answer one of these, I think it's worth pausing and considering why you can't answer it. I asked them, well, let me open this to make sure I've got the wording right. I encouraged you to write down three names. Maybe you want to write these down, maybe you just want to consider it. I, I, don't, I don't know, it's up to you. But consider someone who you're discipling, right? Someone who's over here, who's on their way, right there. They're a Christian, they've confessed Christ, they've repented of their sins, they trust in him. Is there someone over here who you're helping to get over there? Who are you evangelizing? Is there someone over here, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, someone who you run into at a community organization? Is there someone over here who you're telling about the marvelous faith, the great, the great grace that God has had? And saving you? Is there someone over here who you're evangelizing? And, you hope, and you're hoping and you're praying that they come to the place where they repent of their sin, drop their nets, and turn and follow Jesus. And who's discipling you? Is there someone 
that you talk to? Is there someone that's encouraging you in their faith, in your faith? Do you have those three names? If you don't, a great way to get at least a couple of those blanks filled in is to come to home group. Come and be a part of a group of people that prays together, that talks about the sermon together, that confesses struggles together. Come and be part of a group that disciples each other so you can disciple others and that other people can disciple you. But that's our central command. That's our central mission as a church, to go and to make disciples. The song that we're about to conclude this service with, it's one that Janet picked out, and she did an excellent job in picking it out. She said, what about this song? I said, I think that'd be, I think that'd be great. We were looking at songs that would really kind of capture where we are as a church. Songs that would be appropriate for the moment as we remember God's faithfulness in the past and we look forward to what God will do in the future. As we are at the, this crossroads, a song that will really meet us where we are. And she suggested the song, Facing the Task Unfinished. And I think, I think the song, as we sing it, is a beautiful reminder that even though God has been faithful in the past, even though God has done incredible and great and wonderful things, the job that God has given to us, the task to make disciples, is not finished. And we have to go to all the world. We have to teach all nations that we serve a God that saves. As we bring people in, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I want to conclude with this, if we can. The final verse of the book of Matthew. This is Jesus Christ, even as he's ascending to heaven, leaving his disciples, he says, and behold, I am with you always. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The task laid before us may seem daunting, it may seem impossible, it may seem incredibly difficult, but Christ is with us. This is his mission. We're just joining into it. It's ultimately not up to us, right? We don't have to get the oomph. We just have to participate in what God is already doing, and he calls us, come, go, and make disciples, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. And I pray that even as we're challenged this morning, I pray that we're encouraged, that God is with us so that we can be up to the task. Will you pray with me?